Welcome to Invited In, a podcast connecting the global family of Samaritan's Purse. I'm Christy Graham, and today I have the privilege to talk with Ken Isaacs, who is the Vice President of Programs and Government Relations for Samaritan's Purse. He has been working in the relief and development community for over three decades, and he became the first international field staff for Samaritan's Purse when he and his wife, Carolyn, moved to Ethiopia to set up projects there. Since then, he has traveled to over 120 countries and has been on the ground for major international disasters, including the Rwandan genocide of 1994, Sudanese civil war, and the Haiti earthquake of 2010. So thank you so much for making time for us. I have heard so many stories about you throughout the years, as Edward calls you the godfather, Um, (laughs) been instrumental in so many projects. So I I appreciate you sitting down and telling us from your your perspective. Um, So if you don't mind, I'd like to start. Just give us an overview of what's happening in Mozambique, our current crisis. So um, there was a a cyclone, uh, Edai, that uh, hit in the eastern Mozambique in the middle of March. And um, this is a very low-lying area, and the storm came in on a town called uh, Berra has a population of about 500,000. So essentially, that part of Mozambique is now flooded 15 miles inland from the ocean. It's displaced over half a million people. Uh, As we're talking today, more than 800 bodies have been recovered. The estimates are that it could be over 1,000, but based off of, you know, my experience in floods, the body counts always go up as people gain access in the new areas and see what the damage is. So Samaritan's Purse is... um, We've put a DART team, a disaster assistance response team there. We have um, about 20 people on the ground right now. Uh, We're also using uh, two aircraft, our DC-8 and our DC-3. The DC-8 has already made one trip there delivering uh, plastic sheeting tarps, um, which really is a, a very essential thing because if people can't get out of the sun and they can't get out of the rain and they can't get out of... The cold in the evening, the cool in the evening, um, the uh, exposure will wear them down quicker than anything. Um, But today, as we're talking, we are loading uh, the second load in the DC-8 with a field hospital. And uh, we're trying to figure out the exact uh, definition of what that hospital will do. Um, But the primary thing that they've asked us for is to have the capability to give cesarean sections. And we're going to set that up in a town called uh, Boozy. B-U-Z-I, and uh, we will send uh, about an additional 14 people to run that hospital. Those details are in place right now, and I suspect that we will be there 60 to 90 days. Wow. And how do you make the decision on whether to respond and how large a response should be? Uh, That's a good question. It's always um, an inexact science, but I like to say that when something happens in the world, you know, we go to the ditches of life. It, that's what the Good Samaritan did in the parable that Jesus told. He went to the man in the ditch. And um, uh, there are many things that can cause people to get into a ditch in life, and certainly a cyclone is one of them. But there needs to be a compelling spiritual opportunity and a compelling humanitarian need. So we sort of weigh those things. It's not exactly a formula, and it's not in a, in a template. But um, most of the time, it's not 
a very difficult decision to do. The thing that is difficult is how big should the response be. And so we're always making those decisions. Um, you know, we've got a team of people that's analyzing data. And um, at the end, if we're going to do something really big, uh, we always want Franklin's blessing on it. And uh, oftentimes he calls me and says, hey, I think, in fact, in Mozambique, he called me. We were still looking at it, and uh, he called me and said, uh, but we need to get involved there. So that was what launched it just several days ago. Okay. So at the end of the 60 to 90 days, will that field hospital remain? Yes, we'll leave the hospital there. Um, we've built the program around always donating the hospital into the local Ministry of Health. So we're working closely uh, with the Mozambican Ministry of Health as well as the World Health Organization. Okay, great. So you've responded to many disasters in your decades-long career. How would you compare the early days of the ministry with where we are now? Oh, about like day and night. Uh, (laughs) So uh, when I started to work here um, in early 1988, uh, I think we had about 20 employees or 21 Hmm. has always been in my mind. I don't know. Um, So Carolyn and I, along with our two sons, we were the first ones to go overseas. We went to Ethiopia and, you know, we didn't have – a security department. We didn't have staff care. We didn't have field finance. We didn't have logistics. We didn't. We didn't have any of those things. And we went there to set up a, a drilling program. You could call it a development program. But there were two wars going on there for the entire time that we worked there. We lived under a communist regime. We saw enormous suffering from the people, and uh, we got involved in some agricultural programs. And uh, there was no way not to get involved in some emergency relief activities. Um, after we left Ethiopia in 1991, I came back uh, to the U.S., and within 10 days, I found myself in uh, Turkey, uh, and I crossed the border, went into northern Iraq, and that was our first interactions uh, with the Kurds uh, that, that had been driven by Saddam, uh, Saddam Hussein up to the border. So um, in those days, we didn't have, uh, you know, certainly electronic communications, but more than that, we weren't organized in the way that we did a response. Like we have a DART team now. We have an M at the incident management team. We have aircraft. We've got a logistics department. We've got a security department. And we figured out a way to bring all of these things together and deliver them into the field in a coordinated way. And, it, you know, as an organization, thanks to God, we're muscular in, in the field. If, if we go out, we have the capability to do very significant things. And it's a very, very exciting thing to be a part of. In Ethiopia, there's actually a new – is there a new office yes, opening soon? Yes, uh, No, it's already open. I was there um, about three weeks ago for the dedication. We had um, a government minister there and the head of the CSA, which is a civil society agency mm-hmm. uh, that registers non-government organizations. And they uh, – both are Christians. They sp- both spoke at our dedication, and it was a, it was a great warm time. So it was very good to see that office um, oh, open there. That's great. And the reason that you went to Ethiopia started with drilling a well here, correct? Uh, yeah. Is that how that became to be? I- well, um, yeah. So I had gone uh, to West Africa in 1985 as a volunteer with the North Carolina Baptist men, and I just felt like God was calling me to the world. So I just prayed, God, open a door, and um, I will go through it. I prayed that for about 16 or 17 months, and, you know, no doors open, and so I just sort of forgot about that prayer. But we had 
while I was praying, we had drilled a well up at Franklin's house. And um, he and I might have a little bit different memories of it, but it doesn't matter. We did drill a well there, and I did speak to him there. And um, as I was leaving, um, I gave him a card and just said, if something came up about water, uh, let me know in Africa, you know. And uh, I didn't really know Franklin, and I did, nobody knew what Samaritan's Purse was. It was a very small organization. And the only thing that really knew about Franklin was it's got to be Billy's son because he looks like him. <laughs> And, um, uh, and you know, I think that was in May or June of 86, and he called me in August of 87. He had kept the card, and he had gotten a request to buy a drilling machine in Ethiopia, and he asked me if I'd come talk to him because he didn't know if um, uh, that equipment would do the job or not. And that led to me in January of 88 going there for a month and doing an assessment. And I'll always remember when I brought my handwritten report back to him. You know, we didn't have computers and iPhones yes. and everything. Um, and, but I had just asked practical questions and gathered some field data and came back and made a recommendation to him. And as he was looking at it in the office, he looked up at me and he said, I don't think it's a coincidence that we've been brought together. Mm-hmm. And uh, he still reminds me of that um, during from time to time, you know. But, it, you know, I've had a great career. I, I love my work. I'm excited by it. I'm energized by it. And I love, you know, in Matthew 24, in, in that chapter when Christ describes a sign of the end times. And uh, he says, before all these things, this gospel we preach to all the nations. And that's what I feel like that we do. And that's the thing that's really exciting to be a part of. And I've seen God work in many, many ways uh, to achieve that in ways that we can't ponder, we don't understand, and it just happens. And that's sort of where God room is. Thank you for sharing. I had heard that story, but not through you. So I appreciate that. And um, that leads into another question I've always wondered with you. Disaster response is a mentally and physically challenging career path. What has kept you going over so many years? And how do you manage um, just the strain physically and emotionally, spiritually? So I never thought about it as a career path. Hmm. I just thought about it as it was fun. It, it was neat to do it, and I wanted to see us get bigger and, and be able to do more. And um, so I never thought in terms of a career. Just, <laughs> let, let, you know, let, let, let's do more. It's fun to help people. It's fun to share Christ. It's fun to see what God's going to do. So there have been, um, you know, things that I've been a part of that had a profound effect on me. Certainly, uh, the war in Bosnia uh, from 92 through 95, I spent um, in 1993 about probably eight or nine months in uh, Croatia and Zagreb, and that was um, a very, very brutal war. A lot of innocent people died and a lot of brutality in the fighters. And uh, then in Rwanda was, uh, you know, it's not, you know, I, I hope I never have to go back anywhere where a million people have been murdered. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were one of only three agencies that actually worked inside of Rwanda during the genocide. There was us, the Red Cross, and Doctors Without Borders. And um, uh, that was such an enormous thing that I'm not certain that we fully recognized the unique position that we had at that time. But, um, you know, between the war and, and um, in, in Bosnia and then the fighting in Rwanda um, and seeing all the atrocities that happened there, uh, I guess I probably had like some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I didn't fully, 
I didn't know what it was. What I do remember is that when I would get in an airplane and the door would close, I'd start crying. And it was always a little funny because like if a guy was sitting next to me, uh, uh, you know, like it's just tears rolling out. But I think I came to understand after 9-11, I, I did a critical incident stress management course up in New York City to get mm-hmm. credentials to go to Ground Zero that there was something called post-traumatic stress disorder, and I, I really didn't know that it existed. And I, I learned about what the symptoms were, and I realized about, it was an eight-hour course, about two or three hours into it, is I've had this for years. And um, I was very argumentative with my wife, going back and forth in the transition from the field, you know, where you're seeing horrible things happen, and you come home, and you gotta deal with the, you know, the. Washing machine's broken and the grass needs mowing and the kid's got a smart mouth. and You know, you got to deal with like the problems of life. And um, um, so I was blessed to have a, a good woman who would listen to me and not push me mm-hmm. um, to talk. And um, But I also recognized that, you know, everybody handles stress differently. And um, having symptoms from stress are really just you know, it's a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance, and everybody has that, and it shows it in different ways. And I think that I'm fortunate in that I'm wired in such a way that I can sort of absorb those things and uh, figure out as and process them as I go along. So I guess I'm cured now. But out of that uh, certainly came the rapid response team and came the member care program that we have now. It wasn't just me, the brothers as well, that were coming back and having uh, integration challenges, you know, and they, you feel isolated, nobody understands. And and um, uh, and then the other thing is I think that, you know, you have to trust God and you really need to lean into him and that has to be intentional. It can't be casual. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if you think it's just going to be casual, um, you'll, you, you'll fall short and uh, you won't get the kind of spiritual – nourishment that you need to remain strong. Um, I know there are so many stories you could tell, and this is impossible to even ask, but is there one story that you would like to share with the audience to highlight how God has used our international disaster response to change hearts for the gospel? Yeah, so yeah, I mentioned earlier God Room, and you know, there's the, you always want to have evangelism in your heart. Uh, and the human side of mankind wants to know, well, what's your evangelism strategy? And, you know, when I look on the life of Christ, like if my strategy, if I came in the room and said, well, I'm going to have 12 followers and I'm going to get killed, nobody would think that's a good strategy. But yet God used that deliberately to reconcile, to give an opportunity for people to be reconciled to him. That was the strategy. God has a way to work that we can't fathom, and, and he doesn't need us. Mm-hmm. He chooses to use us. Yes. We're allowed to use him. But the story I would tell you is that in Afghanistan, um, at 9-11, uh, after 9-11, I was up in New York, and we began the Billy Graham Prayer Center, which became, in time, the uh, rapid response team that it is now. And probably by the third week of October, I was in Afghanistan. And I crossed over from Uzbekistan, and it was wild and woolly. They, you know, the Northern Alliance was up there, and 
the Taliban, and it was all sort of crazy, and there was bombing going on, and it was a lot of things. And um, so I went and met the commander, Muhammad Atai, he's a Mujahideen, with a beard down to here, and he's got tanks in his yard, and, you know, 500 guys out there with big guns, and it means something when a man's got tanks in his yard. And that sounds humorous, but it means something. And um, so I got an appointment with him, went in to see him, introduced myself, introduced Samaritan's person, told him we were Christians, and asked, told him we wanted to come and help. And if that was going to be a problem, just let me know because I don't want to make a problem. We'll leave. He said it's not going to be a problem. I even went to the extent to tell him that I had seen much to my um, shock, you know, because I, was, I knew I was going to meet Muhammad Atta. Two days earlier, I saw Franklin on CNN. I was in Tajikistan in Dushanbe at this hotel, and they had a big screen TV. And he had been interviewed in Wilkesboro, and he had made a comment about Islam, that it was a wicked and evil religion, and it was all over the international media. And I told this guy that. And I said, but we don't want to make a problem for you. I said, we love the people of Afghanistan. He said, it's not going to be a problem. Come on in. So we went there, and we built a little 25-bed surgical hospital. We built probably a dozen schools, drilled 15 or 20 wells. We had women's vocational training. We asked the local commander where we had gone in this village for a prayer house, and, and he actually gave us a, a building that, that we started worshiping from. And then we left in, um, I think it was about April of 2007, there were two ladies who were executed. They were on a bicycle. They were teachers down in Kabul. And that was really a sign like it's time to go. But the point is when we left, over 500 people had accepted Christ and they're still there. They're still there. And I can't say that we had a strategy for that, Mm -hmm. but I can say that God used what we were doing because we wanted to honor him and help in Jesus' name. He used it to honor himself and to bring people to him. Wow. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing. Um, And there seems to be a larger capacity for medical, emergency medical response right now. Why was the decision made to make more of a focus of our disaster response? So if you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan in the book of Luke, this guy's beaten. He's left in the ditch, right? left for dead. And the holy men of the day, the, the, they walk around him. And the social outcast, the Samaritan, he sees him. He takes pity on him. And he goes to him. Th- th- those are important steps in this analysis. His compassion in his heart. And he went to him. And the first thing he did was he bandaged his wounds. That's medical. And he put him on the donkey. That's logistical. And he took him to the inn where he took care of him. He would have gotten shelter. He would have gotten water. He would have gotten food. He would have gotten a blanket. And he left two coins for intermediate care. And in that parable, Christ described the six sectors of emergency response perfectly. So over the years, we have worked on developing the delivery capability of an emergency response team to the field with the incident command system. We have always been involved in emergency medical. Our first response in Somalia back in 1992 was essentially a medical response. It was into, and then in Rwanda, it was a medical response and we reopened the central hospital of Kigali, but we weren't thinking that way exactly. And all we have actually done now 
is the Dart, I imagine it as a four-wheel drive big pickup. And we can put anything in it we want. And now, you know, we've got a shelter box that we can put in it. We've got the water box. We've got the... Uh, this called NFI, non-food items. That would be like blankets and clothes. We can put food in it. Now we've got a medicine box that we can put in it. That's what you're actually seeing. That's how I see it in my mind. So we can deliver medical uh, relief to the field. And, and we can, we've created it in a modular system so that we can tier it. Like if it's an outpatient clinic or if they need infectious disease like for Ebola or if what's going on requires uh, surgical capability, like what we did outside of Mosul, where we had over 4,000 patients, performed over 1,700 life-saving surgeries in a war zone. Um, but we're able to adjust uh, to what we need. So it's really just a um, the, the latest and newest addition. We're getting much better at it, and I want to see us be the best in the world at what we do. So in closing, whenever we close out our podcasts, we like to give a, a prayer request, and today it will be Mozambique, as you talked about earlier. Can you just give us some practical ways to pray for people that are hurting and amidst disaster? So as we're talking today, there are literally still maybe 200,000 people that are up on little high pieces of ground, and they're trying to rescue them. There's still people on tops of buildings, so their water is dirty. They've lost their homes. They've lost family members. All of their infrastructure, the roads are washed away. So uh, pray for the people of Mozambique in that affected area, uh, the upper estimates are probably one and a half to two million people that are affected and uh, pray for our team as we are there and you know it's very much like a speed drill um, in putting together an emergency response we've got very good people uh, on the ground pray for them to be you know to have favor to have discernment um, and um, that our response would be effective not only in helping people but ultimately effective for kingdom building Thank you. Sometimes it's just hard in America to know how to pray, you know, yeah. but for you to have seen death, destruction, it's just helpful to know. Um, and with going with that, I know in disaster relief here in America, we partner with churches. Yeah. Over there, do you partner with any churches yes. ongoing? Yes. So we had an office in Mozambique. There was a flood 19 years ago this month in, in Mozambique in the year 2000, and we had an office there for about 13 years. And we closed it down five or six years ago. And um, so we have a vast network of connections there that left over from those times. We also have networks all around the world through OCC and the national leadership team. So, I mean, we're pretty well plugged in. So in Barra, where we've set mm -hmm. the office up, a former employee of ours who is a pastor had a compound and we're living in his compound and we've hired him to be our ministry coordinator and build relationships. And we have other staff. We have to find Portuguese-speaking staff because that's the language there to go out. And they'll be going out within a week. And uh, so, yes, we do partner with churches. But right now, it's sort of hard to even know where the churches are because everything's underwater. Right. And, uh, but we're gonna, we want to help them pick up the pieces and move forward. Great. love hearing the body of Christ work together. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, and we appreciate your thoughts, insights. And as we close, as he said, we were praying for Mozambique this week, the tropical cyclone that we just talked about, the, dis the damage and destruction there. Just keep praying for the people there. Thank you for tuning in today. Please join us next week as we talk with Aileen Coleman, a missionary who's been serving in Jordan for over 60 years. 